I think from Jesus's teachings, what I take away from it is the only time that heaven celebrates and rejoices and the Father's heart is moved. It's not when people speak in tongues. It's not when we get a miracle. It's not even when healings break out. It's when one sinner genuinely repents of their sins and makes Jesus Christ their Lord. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. On behalf of Disciple of City, I'm Todd Carlton, and this is the Toddcast. Friends, we exist to equip Christians to be active sharers of the gospel and become disciple-making disciples. And you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram, and you can follow the podcast on Instagram at the Toddcast underscore DAC. And you can also be encouraged with the United Hive app, which is where I connected with my guests today. He's originally from Cork, Ireland. He's now living in Pensacola, Florida. He's an author and a fiery evangelist at Commission US since 2017. Here to share his story is Adam Field. Hey, bro. Hey, so great to be on here with you, brother. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you, man. I meant to ask you before we started, is it Commission US or Commission Us? It's Commission US, but we can do us as well. That's well, I got too. it right then. I got it right. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So welcome to the show. And friends, while you're listening, uh, we may have a little bit of an unstable internet connection here, but just bear with us. Uh, it seems to be working not too bad. So it's good. And there's a message there. So, yeah. So, um, Adam, yeah, welcome again to the show. Thanks for taking some time to chat with us today. Um Bro, I've been following you on Instagram and all the work you're doing uh, all over the U.S. It's really exciting. Um, but let's, uh, I like to start at the beginning. So uh, just reading your bio, you're from Cork, Ireland, and uh, you, you came to faith, it says, at six years old. And I've had a lot of guests that talk about something happening at six or seven years old, like many, which is really interesting for that same age. Um, so can you just share w- what happened or your experiences at that age? Yeah, my mom and dad were both Roman Catholics uh, long before I was born. They were raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And both of them, prior to meeting each other, were both radically born again, uh, radically born again, saved out of sin, saved out of religion. And they met at a small Assembly of God church in our city in Cork, Ireland, and they got married and then had me about six years later, and I was born into this 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 Christian family. Um, you have to understand, like my dad was on his way to being a priest in the Catholic Church, so his whole family are very staunch Roman Catholics, uh, so strong that they would believe if you're not Roman Catholic, you're not saved, you're not going to heaven. If you've not been baptized by a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, you are not saved and you are not going to heaven. So the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland is very different than the Roman Catholic Church here in the United States. I'm not sure about Canada, but it's very compromised over here where with the ecumenical movement, everything goes. So being raised in a home where my dad's family members ostracized him and really rejected him because of his conversion... I learned from a young that we were different. Um, same with my mom's side of her family as well, although many of them had become born again and saved as well. 
But at the age of six, I actually had a very strong conscience that I wasn't saved. And I also knew deep down that I was rebellious against my parents and I had dishonored them uh, on multiple occasions, even spoke back to them. And on my sixth birthday, I took the strawberries out of the middle center of mom's birthday cake for me. And uh, on my birthday, she said, who ate all the strawberries? And I I said, I did not know. And I lied. And I just knew my my I, I I sinned. I knew I was not only disrespecting, dishonoring, lying. So my mom um, sat me down, and she's like, "You need to have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you need to be born again." And so I repented of my sin, and I received the Lord at six. And uh, throughout my elementary school years, I could sense the nearness of God to me. Uh, I could feel His presence with me. I knew he was my first to go to for nightmares or bullies at school. Um, there was one kid that kept pushing me, kept being very terrible, really, to me. And uh, my dad wanted to teach me how to fight back and teach me how to like push back. But I didn't have that in me. And so I just got on my knees and said, God, you're going to have to fight this battle for me. If you did it for David against Goliath, then you could do it for me. And the next day when I went to school, that kid had being moved up the country because there was a family emergency and was not going to be brought back to school at our at our school ever again. And so just little answers to prayers. I, I saw him doing things in my life. I saw him answering things in my life. I I ran over, a, I, I, I literally ran over the edge of a 60-foot cliff in Ireland and I felt something grab my shirt from behind me and pull me back up onto the cliff I would have fell to my death. And my mom witnessed it. And uh, she said, I looked like a ghost as I came towards her. She said, my face was white. And all I could say was something grabbed the back of my shirt and pulled me off of falling 60 feet down to my death and pulled me back up onto the cliff. There was another time I was saved when a wild horse got loose at a camp that we were at. And my mom and my dad were talking to one another and they saw me out in the middle of the field and this wild horse ran at about 25, 30 miles per hour towards me. And it got within to the point I could feel its breath on my face and just pivoted uh, around me miraculously. And all I could say was the name of Jesus, even at that age. And so, you know, I started preaching on the streets of Ireland at about 12 years old with our church and uh, started street preaching and uh, saw God do incredible things on the streets. I I watched my dad street preach. I I saw homosexuals get saved. I saw prostitutes get saved. I witnessed witnessed deliverance on the streets. Uh, There was no Facebook, no Instagram, no cameras, no footage. I just had two eyes looking at the power of Jesus' name casting out wickedness on the streets of Ireland. And I know it to be true because I witnessed it before the fad and before the trends and before the movies and before the the digital age of cameras. I saw this happening right before my eyes. And uh, at the age of about 14, uh, David Wilkerson from New York came to Ireland and had a massive impact on my life to the point where he helped pay for me to go to his Bible college and uh, I got to meet him and spend time with him and fellowship with him and I got to preach at Times Square Church later on in my life and 
um, really launched as an evangelist to this day because of the investment that David Wilkerson put in my life. But when I was about 15 years old, uh, there was a lot of suicide in our city, a lot of drug addiction. So I went to the principal of our school and said, I would like to start a church right here in our school. And uh, I didn't want to be a part of the Christian clubs that were there because they were, in my opinion, just religious Ned Flanders, like, like, you know, just that that's not what I was into. So I started our own thing and started inviting soccer players, hockey players, family members, anyone that would want to come to our little gathering during recess, during lunch on a Thursday. And uh, that grew to about 60 to 70. Uh, and it's still going on to this day. I graduated in 2004 from high school and uh, it's student run, student led, and it's been going on to this day. Wow. Uh, it's, 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 it's amazing. And it's, it's, it's a church. We do worship, we preach. There's no Baptists, there's no Pentecostals, no Methodists, just teenagers that love Jesus and want to share Jesus with their school. Uh, it was a phenomenal period in my life, a phenomenal period in my life before I went to Bible college. Wow. That's, that's amazing. That's, uh, it's amazing that at six years old, you just were really aware of that. You know, you were really aware of, of his presence at my, you know, clearly is an example of the truth that your parents were walking in. Um, when you talked about the cliff of going over the cliff, like, was that an accident that you were playing too close to it or were you, or what, what was that? No, I was, when we were younger, we used to run over the, we used to run over the rock formations around the coastline. It was just kind of something we did when we were fun. I was about eight years old and we were just like running over all the little pools and little ponds. And, and I had gotten up pretty high, not realizing it. And my parents were looking at me as I was running ahead of them, but I did not realize how there was it. Like when you're going up the side of um, what you couldn't see over the other side. So I was running, running, running over. And I thought it was just going to keep on going as, as just rock formation, but it wasn't, it was like a 60 foot drop. And so I, both feet had left the edge of the, the cliff face like I, I was I was running so fast I couldn't see what was on the other side of what I was going up and both feet went over the edge and I felt something grab like strong on my shirt it stretched my shirt out so bad and pulled me back up onto the edge of the cliff and I, I went I went to went my mom and dad went, saw me so I was going towards them and they said it was like my face was like a ghost I was just pale white something had happened they knew they knew something just took place but should have been dead in that moment wow wow that's so that's such a powerful miracle hey it's really interesting too how that happened a lot of people have an encounter or, or whatever when they're young and but then as they grow and they're exposed to the world you know they sort of check out different things I don't want to say backslide, but for back of lack of a better explanation, um, it's amazing how that that power, how Jesus was on you so much through school. Um, so you left school and you you pastored at a bunch of different places and got involved in ministry in Ireland. Can you take us to sort of the end of that? Where because I just find it interesting that you got called out of 
Ireland to Florida of all places. Like, it's just interesting right. how, how well, my wife, my, my wife and I, my wife is from Panama city, Florida. Okay. So yeah, we met at Bible college, got married. And I basically told her before she married me, if you're going to marry me, you're going to die in Ireland. I'm not leaving my island. I'm not leaving Ireland. I'm, I I am an Irish man. <laughs> Every, everyone I know is from Ireland. I don't know anyone that has left the island. We, Our family have had a very good life in Ireland. And we have everything and more than what America would offer anybody where I'm from. I know. I know. And I'm so, laughing, bro, because I, I, my stepfather's Irish. I, I know. Uh, I, I know. Uh, I know the Irish and it, it's interesting too, when you said, Oh, your dad wanted to teach you how to push back on the bully, right? The fighting Irish, bro. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I've got family, family members that were a part of the IRA that fought for our independence against the British. Um, we, I'm from the Republic of Ireland. So all of our family are very strong Republicans and we're very about us having a vote uh, us having a say in our, the direction of our country, and uh, we're we're really anti-monarchists. And um, a lot of our family would be anti the monarchy, uh, anti like when the Queen asked. A lot of people were celebrating where I'm from. Um, we and one of the and it's uh, it's just we were raised. Um, I meet a lot of guys that's Irish, but they're loyalists and they're from the north, they're Belfast or Derry. They're 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 underneath the United Kingdom, whereas where I'm from, like you don't find too many born again, spirit filled, Jesus praying, you know, Christ honoring, Bible believing Christians. I mean, less than one percent of population in Ireland are born again. Less one percent, probably point zero four percent in the south of Ireland are born again. We're talking about a a country that's ninety nine point nine percent Roman Catholic. Wow. They are not practicing; they are still very loyal to their faith. Um, so, like we, to, to, for me to be who I am today is a miracle. Um, my grandmother just passed away. She devoted her soul to Mary. You know, my grandmother took the Bible out of my dad's hands and threw it into an open fire and burned it and said, no Protestant book is allowed in this home. Wow. That the Bible in our language, English, as Protestant, and it was deserving of burned because only the true church would have it in Latin, which is God's holy language. So, um, you know, I planted a church in County Southwest Ireland, very rough, very dark. My wife was in a car accident. She didn't recover from it. And it transitioned us from Ireland to her family in Panama City, Florida. So we, we moved to Florida because my wife wasn't doing good. And uh, she needed help. And when we moved here, the, the Lord humbled me. And... Uh, made me let my Irish pride and made me realize that I can't be about one race or one people group. And I submitted to the will of God and I repented to him 
And I said, whatever you want to do with me in America, do it for your glory. Wow. And so when um, when the Wilkerson's heard that I, that I was in Florida, they moved our family from up to Colorado because my wife was much healthier at that point, and but she still didn't want to move to Ireland because it was just so dark there for her. So we moved to Colorado. And then, you know, while I was doing evangelistic work there, I could tell that the direction of the organization, since David Wilkerson had passed away, was moving away from street preaching, evangelism, and uh, even gospel preaching. And so that was sad for me, but it made me realize I need to get right now before I get let go or fired. (laughs) So my wife and I called in a group of men that I had worked with in Colorado, businessmen, and I cast a vision to them. And they all cut checks in that moment, and we started co-mission. We got a website built. We got our social media up. We... Uh, got our bank account opened in the name of Commission, our 501c3, which is uh, a nonprofit status here in the United States. And this all in 2017. So I went, you know, working for an evangelistic ministry to be an evangelist of a ministry God has now given to me to lead. And uh, 2017 to 2023, being to over 40 states in the country, and uh, we've trained thousands in evangelism, thousands. Uh, we've preached in stadiums, we've preached in high schools, we've preached on street corners. We've we've done a lot of ministry. Were you So you guys were living then in Colorado? When this first ministry years. first started, yeah, for the first five years, and then you're and then move back to Florida, but the ministry is based out of Colorado. Hey, uh, that's where it's based. Yeah. And we might, we might move it to Florida, but right now we're having it in Colorado. I got a lot of friends up there, a lot of church friends up there. And my best friend is up there and I go back and forth between there. Um, uh, and so, yeah, we, we, we live in Pensacola. Um, I never knew of the Brownsville revival. I never knew much about it, to be honest with you. And, um, I got a call two years ago while I was living here that the pastor of the Brownsville Church was having health conditions, health, very serious health issues. And they asked if I would cover for the pastor for about eight months. And so I, I um, stopped traveling and became, I told them I'm an evangelist. I'm not going to be a pastor at this church. And as soon as pastor's up on his feet, I'm gone. But I said, I will cover the pulpit for the church until the pastor is back on his feet again. And so I got to really get to know the Brownsville family, the Brownsville culture, the the Brownsville preachers. I got to meet people that were the fruit of the Brownsville revival. And um, it was pretty exciting. Very different, I would say, than how I was raised. Uh, it was definitely a different flair of the Pentecostal side that, we were raised on, you know, in Ireland, the Pentecostal church boasted in their evangelism, gospel preaching and street witnessing. But over here, it seemed to be more about signs and wonders, healings, miracles, 
demons being cast out. And I kind of was troubled with it at first because I was seeing the same people going through the motions every week, week in, week out. And I wished, and I still to this day would say that people that are involved in that realm would start taking their gifts to where it's needed the most, which would be the homeless shelters, uh, the downtowns, the city streets of this country. Um, but who's going to listen to me? So I, I just go out there and keep preaching the gospel, brother. Well, or, or it needs to be a combination of both. Like the early apostles, they're walking, preaching the gospel, and signs and wonders follow them because they believe, right? Both is essential, absolutely. Yeah. It's just, yeah, both both would be the best, but I think from Jesus' teachings, what I take away from it is the only time that heaven celebrates and rejoices and the Father's heart is moved. It's not when people speak in tongues. It's not when we get a miracle. It's not even when healings break out. It's when one sinner genuinely repents of their sins and makes Jesus Christ their Lord. Amen. That's when that that that's we should want to please God. We should want to honor God. And Jesus gave us a hint as to what the Father really gets moved by. You know, we what what makes heaven stop. We we have to realize Jesus was telling us there in that moment, guys, this is this is the Father's heart here. This is what makes angels celebrate. And I, I believe that if we could get back to that, all those signs and wonders, they'll follow. The miracles will happen. Things will be there. But even Jesus, when he performed miracles and healed some, he would say, don't go around the place telling them that I did this for you. There were some cases Jesus would say, listen, this is just between you and me right here. I don't want this to be the standard. I don't want everyone thinking they're going to come to me and get whatever they want from me. I'm really about saving people from their sin. And I'm really about the everlasting life that I've offered the human race. I don't want people using me like a genie in a bottle. Mm. I don't want people using me just to get what they want out of me and then just move on with them with their own lives and their own selves. Uh, you know, it's, it's like Jesus, is not a prostitute that you just hire for a moment and then throw him off when you get what you want. You know, yeah. it's like he came to bring a relationship between the father and a broken, sinful race, the human race. And that relationship needs to be the emphasis of our message more so than what we get out of God. It's like you know, the devil can give us a lot of things too that can make us wealthy and famous and popular, but that is not salvation. And uh, so anyway, that, that that's something that I have been able to be a part of. The Brownsville Network has been an awesome honor and um, they still, we still have a great relationship and we do a lot of ministry together. So the pastor eventually got back on his feet. Yeah, yeah. he's back on his feet preaching, pastoring. We did a transition on a Sunday where I stepped out and he stepped into his role. And it's amazing because that doesn't typically happen, especially today. A lot of younger guys are, have you ever heard of a cuckoo? Um, a cuckoo 
if you notice cuckoos, if you read up on cuckoos, the bird, they never build their own nests. Um, a cuckoo will fly around looking for birds that have established a nest and had left the eggs and go out to look for food or whatever. And a cuckoo will come in and crack open the eggs in the nest, eat the babies, and then take the nest for itself. And you see a lot of younger guys being like that with the older pastors. They're like cuckoos. They just wait for pastors to die or wait for pastors to be put out or wait for, for them to end up in hospital. And then the young guys come in and uh, take over the church. Mm. That happens quite a bit here in the U.S. Oh. A cuckoo spirit. Cuckoo spirit. Yeah, we have a bird in Canada that does that too. Does that same thing. Doesn't build a nest, robs from, from another's. So, um, well, you must have really inspired them then just the way the way you are with your gifting of, of uh, sharing the gospel and helping. I mean, I'm sure they did, but probably even more so just emphasize the importance of sharing the gospel. And yeah, it's interesting because um, signs and wonders are amazing and fascinating and you can quickly lose your focus and get focused on that. Right. It's very common for that to happen. Hey, but you're so right. That was so good. What you said about the, what the real importance is and what really lights up heaven when a sinner repents. I'm so Adam, you've been, uh, we've been trying to connect for, for a couple months now and uh, you've been really, really busy all over. So can you just talk about, uh, a couple of the recent places that you were at and, uh, maybe something that really stood out to you in particular, I mean, there was a lot. You were yeah. in a lot of places, I, but just was in. I was I, the, one of the big ones for me is I was up in Oregon, uh, a city called Pendleton. To get there, it's about three hours from any major airport. Uh, so we, you're out there in the middle of what I would define nowhere, and uh, the the people that live there this far away from civilization are still very much so back in the 1920s in their mindset you know the the, so about a hundred thousand of them gathered in pendleton for a roundup where they would bring in their bulls cows their horses their calves and they would hold an old-fashioned roundup and and the native indians and the cowboys and these are not Disney World Native Indians or boys. You know, this is not like going to a museum and seeing people just dressing up in this attire. Like these are people that live this way, like to this day. So I, that's what was fascinating to me about it. Um, the Native Indians and the cowboys agreed to do the roundup together because it generated a lot of profit, both for both sides. And uh, I went over to the Native Indian side of the roundup where they would stay in their teepees. Some of them stay in teepees, some of them stay in houses. Well, these guys wanted to be in their teepees during the roundup. And so I went over to, and there was this area that was sacred that, of course, I did not know it was sacred. And I, I walked over on over to it and I was stepping on, all, all, all on deer bones, just crunching 
deer bones under my feet. And one of the security guards says, sir, you're not supposed to be over there. That's a sacred area where they spread their deer bones. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I just like <laughs> trampled under my feet whatever they had done with it. So I, I shouted back at the security guard. I said, why is there an Irish flag flying from the teepee? That's why I'm going over there. There's an Irish flag flying from the teepee. So I get over closer to the security guard and he tells me that the chief is Irish. The chief of the native Indian, the Umatilla Indians is Irish. So I was like, like I want to meet the chief. And he's like, oh, look, there he is. So he brings me over to the chief and I meet the chief. And the last name of the chief is O'Connor. Wow. And I said, how did you get the last name O'Connor? And, and he, he said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Ireland, born and raised. And he said, the first white man to cross over the mountain range was an Irishman by the name O'Connor. And he got with my great, 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 great grandmother and had 22 boys with her. Wow. Yeah. And so the O'Connor name spread all over the Northwest from Washington State all the way down to Northern California even into Montana, into the Dakotas, the O'Connor name. <laughs> and so we had a great conversation, just me being Irish and everything and, and talking about it. And he was saying that the Native Indians have been treated terribly by the white people and that they are trying to hold on to their language, their culture, their worship, you know, keep their bloodline pure if they can. And he said, you'd understand that being Irish. And I said to him, you know, I'm not Irish for. He said, what do you mean? He said, In fact, I, I said, I renounce Ireland and anything to do with Irish culture that contradicts my Jesus and his holy word. Mm. And uh, I said to him, you need to do the same. He said, what do you mean? I said, I look at all your young people. And they are gambling, they are doing drugs, they are overdosing, they're battling depression and suicide. What good is your heritage producing amongst the young people in the tribes? Your language doesn't benefit them. Your worship of their gods is not doing anything good for them. And keeping them 100% bloodline is causing deformities amongst the native Indians. That's why a lot of native Indians have deformed ma ma mouth, deformed teeth, deformed cheekbones, deformed faces is because there's so much incest that goes on, so much rape that goes on amongst the native Indians where their their DNA is 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 very close to each other because they're basically marrying cousins second cousins, third cousins, all for the sake of boasting in being 100% Indian. Mm. And uh, he started getting a bit offended with me, but I had to tell him, I said, that's why Jesus was crucified by the Jews, was because Jesus wasn't here to promote the Jews. He wasn't here to say Jewish lives are the lives that matter. And one of the offensive teachings that Jesus ever preached is found in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That, that most offensive teaching a Jew 
the time of Christ could ever have heard. How could you tell me, for God so loved the world? The Jews wanted a Messiah that would say, for God so loves the Jews. Not Messiah, for God so loved the world. They didn't want to see Gentiles get saved. They didn't want to see Roman centurions sick get healed. They didn't want to see Samaritan be greeted by their Messiah. They want to see prostitutes with their Messiah washing his feet. They didn't want to see the disciples of Jesus eating corn on the Sabbath day. Or they didn't want their Messiah healing sick on the Sabbath day. You know, the Jews did a Messiah that would elevate and their race, and their group. And here comes Jesus telling the world that he loves them all, and that the seed of Abraham isn't the only seed that Jesus Christ came to save, but it was the seed of Adam that Jesus Christ came to save. And we are all of the seed of Adam. We are not all of the seed of Abraham, but we are all of the seed of Adam. And that's why in Galatians it says that Jesus is the second Adam, He's not the second Abraham. He's the second Adam. Because Jesus Christ had come for the seed of Adam. To, for, for everyone to be saved. So that everyone has an opportunity of salvation. And that's why I'm against the Calvinists. And I'm against Tulip and all the points of Calvinism. Because I believe that the atoning blood of Jesus is unlimited. And it will always be unlimited. Whereas they want to say that it's limited atonement. No, it's unlimited. Jesus Christ shed his blood for the sins of the world. And that's why John the Baptist said about Jesus when he saw him in a distance, he said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist said about Jesus. Because our sins... An Irish, Gentile, infidel, whatever you want to call me, had my sins forgiven me by the blood of Jesus Christ. I've been cleansed and washed by the blood of Jesus. As much as anyone else has access to the Father, I do. And you do, that are listening in today. And so I said that to the Indian, and his daughter had overdosed on fentanyl months prior, so he starts to cry a little bit. Now, he didn't convert, he didn't repent, but I definitely got to put the seed of the gospel deep in his soul and make him realize his people group and his nationalistic passions are not unique. But the Jews had it too, and the Irish have it, and the Americans have it. And so uh, I think the reality is, is we have to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and that our citizenship is first of heaven, and that our loyalties are to the scripture before any constitution or any flag. Yeah. And, uh, we, you know, so anyway, that, that's a little bit about Oregon. That, that was probably one of the most exciting trips that I've had. Oregon, Chicago was amazing. I had a gang member come at me, tell me he's going to put bullets in me and, making all types of threats in my face. And I lifted my hand and shouted in tongues in his face. And the Holy Spirit took him over so strong, he fell on his face onto the concrete and started weeping, crying out for mercy. Oh, and <clears throat> that was on Instagram. 
Yeah, someone yes. took a, someone took took a video because they thought they were about to witness a murder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they thought they were about to witness a murder, but they actually got to witness a radical conversion. Come on, where it went from a guy threatening to put bullets in me to being laid out on a concrete, dirty, filthy street corner, crying out to God for mercy for his soul wow. as he repented of his sins right there. His face was in the gum, the nasty, old, disgusting gum that was stuck to the concrete. His Jordan shoes that probably cost him $1,000 were getting scuffed up by street scum. And he's weeping, crying out to God for mercy, brother. Wow. And what, uh, what happened after? You know, what I, I remember seeing, well, obviously I didn't see the beginning part because they started filming after, but uh, in your clip, what happened after, after that when he got up? He laid there for a solid 15 minutes. And when he had gotten up, we got him connected to a local church. We, we had about three churches represented out on the streets that day. We had over 200 believers trained in evangelism. And so we had taken them out to the streets to preach the gospel. And so he got inducted into that uh, group and church and ministry and phone numbers were exchanged. Contact information was exchanged and, uh, the pastor's in touch with him. So we just, I just trust the pastors with that. You know, I, I don't, I, I'm an evangelist, so I don't do the follow-up. I don't, that's not really my responsibility. I just see people come to Jesus and then pass them off to the church and pass them off to the pastor. Amen. And trust, trust God that the pastor will do the right thing, but it's not my job. I, I don't carry the burden of, you know, taking people all the way through into discipleship. I just want to see people come to faith in Jesus. And then if you're a pastor, here you go. I'll, I'll bring you all these people and you can, you can disciple them. Yeah. Fivefold. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, it's f- always fascinated me identity. And just as you're sharing your story from the beginning until now, your identity as an Irishman, when you talked about the, the Indians in Oregon and anybody, right? Including myself in my story. It's like we're programmed by him for identity and we seek some kind of identity, whether it's race, country, whatever it is, culture, subcultures. And the reality that I've seen, and clearly you have too, is that if you look anywhere other than our identity in him, you'll never find joy or happiness at all. Yeah. We were talking just before the show, just like to sort of touch on it a little bit. Cause I was recently at a conference where one of the speakers talked about the importance of staying in your lane as not somebody in ministry, but just all of us, whatever we're called to. Cause whether you're <clears throat> in full-time ministry or not, we're, we're all in ministry. We're all to share the gospel. Right. But just of staying in your lane of what you were called to do. So it was interesting of how you just said, like, you're the evangelist. That's what you do. And bring people to the Lord and the pastors pastor them and the teachers teach them. So just in that and what we were talking about earlier, can you just share the importance of what that means to you as far as evangelists go? Absolutely. Um, So in Ireland, where I grew up, we grew up in the city but it did not take long for you to get to the country. I mean, you can be in a bustling city and five minutes later, you could be 
in the countryside. And so we would go out to the countryside quite a bit and walk the fields when we were younger. And I remember this one particular field had about six head of cows in it. Uh, the was getting ready to unload this bull from the back of a trailer into this field full of cows. And I went over to him and I said, you know, why is there one bull? And I put one bull in a field of cows. And I said, why? Why can't you put two? And he said, because the two bulls will fight even to death if necessary, because you can only have one bull per field of cows. Now, he said, if I castrate one of the bulls or I put other castrated bulls into the field, they'll all be fine. They'll all get along. But you can't put more than one uncastrated bull in a field of cows and not expect a, a battle and a fight that could really harm the bulls. And so I, 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 that always stuck with me. And now, ever since I've come to the United States and I'm meeting with other evangelists and other offices within the fivefold ministry, I'm starting to see that there is a bull mentality amongst them where they look at their congregation as their cows. And the only way that they will work with another evangelist or work with another pastor is that that evangelist or that pastor is castrated in some type of way. They can't be the same skill set, the same giftedness. There can't be any type of the cows wanting that evangelist more than the evangelist who is over that set of bulls, that set of cows. And so there's in the in the fivefold, there's a lot of jealousy, there's a lot of envy, and there's a lot of guys that are just really about their own ministry. It's like the spirit of Saul and David. They they look at the younger guys as a threat. They look at the younger guys as intimidating. They look at the younger guys like, oh, he's here to steal my cows. He's here to take the cows to himself. So I'll never have him. He can't come to my church because the, the cows will like him more than me. Oh, he can't preach and do this because the, my cows are going to love to see him more than me. And so that insecurity that is within the fivefold today is really pushing the younger generation out of being raised up and out of being groomed and 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 invested in and equipped because the older generation are basically hoarding the cows to themselves and want to keep the cows to themselves and they don't want anyone coming in and threatening their cows and so that's why a lot of evangelists you know their friendships are 100 miles from each other or 200 miles from each other you know they're they're not going to be right up in each other's grill or up in each other's town or anything like that and if they are in close proximity with one another they have to find a reason to not work with them so they have to shun them shame them say something bad about them well that church is good but you know this happened there 10 years ago you know some way to keep the cows coming to their church you know keep coming to their to their group and the only way that they can seem to do that because of their insecurity is talk bad about other churches 
you know, talk bad about other evangelists, um, speak death over them, like not fan into flame their gifts, not so financially into their ministry, but even pray that it dries up and that the cows don't have anyone else to look to other than their guy, you know? And um, so like evangelists are very, 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 very much so like a bull. You don't see two or three evangelists ever together. You very, very see them do tent meetings together. You very, very see them do church ministry together. And when they go to the streets, you very rarely see them on the streets together either because they can't have anyone outshine them, outperform them, outrun them, get more souls saved than they did. You know, it's like an offense for them. And so what I've learned through it is to really invest in the younger guys. Like I'm 37, so I've got a whole group of guys in their early 20s that don't see me as a peer or as like uh, a threat to them. And I'm able to like somehow, some way invest in them and raise them up. And, 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 and by the grace of God, I can change a measure of that culture. But the only way that that culture is going to end is if John the Baptist's words would get preached in our pulpits again, when he said to his own disciples, let Jesus baptize more than me. Let his disciples baptize more than us. Because our ministry needs to decrease so his ministry can increase. Yeah. And and truly, that takes a lot of humility for anyone to be in a leadership role of an evangelist or whatever and say, I'm here to decrease. I'm here to fan into flame other evangelists. I'm here to be forgotten so that you can be remembered. I'm here to equip you to get you to where you need to be so that there's more of us doing the same thing for the gospel's sake. And uh, it's it's pretty sad. And you can look at this. It's not just in the, it's in the Baptist world as well with Billy Graham or, or Jimmy Swaggart or David Wilkerson. But a, a lot of these evangelistic associations are very nepotistic and they're kept within their bloodline and they all share a similar last name and you can marry into it or you could be born into it, but you will never have any of it if you're not into them. Mm. And so you, you kind of see a nepotism is just terrible. I mean, all across the United States, pastors are giving their wives um, high paying salaries. Uh, they'll give, they'll prefer their kids on staff with them than over someone that's qualified or called or anointed to be in that role. And a lot of churches have been turned into family-run enterprises and family-run businesses where it becomes more about the last name of the family member than it is about discipling the congregation and equipping the church. And nepotism is wicked. And nepotism never, never, never was God's will uh, for his leaders. And you can see this throughout the kings. You see it with Saul and Jonathan. You see it with David and Solomon. You, you see it all throughout the New Old Testament. It was like, don't pass stuff on to your kids just for the sake of it. Like, take time with God. Let God lead his church. Let Jesus put leaders in positions and not just your family members in positions. Um, so nepotism is is wicked. Um, it, yeah. it turns these 
churches and ministries into miniature kingdoms. And the apostle or the evangelist or the pastor looks at themselves as a little king and that they make all the shots and decisions for their church. And uh, that's not how the church is. The church is made up of elders and deacons and never was supposed to have kings and queens on thrones. It was supposed to be the Holy Spirit anointing who he wants to anoint and speaking to the church in the direction that he wants the church to go in. I believe Jesus wants his church back, you know, from very controlling people that have made it more about them than about him. It's really interesting how hard, well, in my thoughts anyways, how hard the enemy works to deceive and do that stuff where you think you're doing good, but with that whole nepotism piece and all that, and it's deception And then the bigger result of that is people outside of the church aren't stupid. They see that, right? And then it drives them away. Oh, this is how you guys operate? I don't want to have anything to do with any of it. And then they don't want to listen to anybody, right? And miss the message. Fascinating. Adam, almost out of time here, bro. But uh, I had one more question for you. But I also wanted to, uh, you've written a book from, from Milk to Meat. Can you give a little blurb on what that book is about? Yeah, uh, I've been writing for about 18 years now every day. And if you go on Instagram and Facebook, you'll see the handwriting of these journals that I've been holding on to. And I've been working through about 18 books of the Bible, um, working on a commentary. Uh, It's not as exhaustive as Matthew Henry, but it's very to the point type commentary. And it's not theologically or doctrinally based, although doctrine and theology is very important to me, but it's very practical. And it's pushing pushing readers to to see that scripture is more practical than it is theory. And and so when you're reading from milk to meat, what what you're doing is you're 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 reading content that's making theology and doctrine practical. How, how can you live this out? How do you make this real to today? And um, I'll tell you, From Milk to Meat actually got published because I was posting on social media about seven, eight years ago, little exhortations and devotionals. And a literary agent reached out to me from Christian Faith Publishing and asked if I would publish this content. And I said at the time, sure, but I have no money. And they wanted $10,000. And I was like, then I'll just keep doing it for free on (laughs) Facebook. So they sent me an application to apply for a grant. And I got approved for the full amount in the grant. And they published From Milk to Meat. And it's on Amazon and you can buy it online I mean, really, it's not about money. There's not, no financial profit, really, to me. It's They are making it all back because basically the grant was conditional to the sale of the book. And so until the book sells a certain amount and they get their money back for what they invested in the book, then I won't see any type of financial benefit from the book. Wow. So, But it's really not, it's not really about the money anyway. But here's a really exciting part is... So the book's being sold, the book's going out there, 
I don't have a lot of control over it. I don't even have copies of the book myself. I've given them all away for free. But I have an editor down in South Florida who currently is taking every exhortation that I'm writing on Instagram. Underneath every picture that I post, you will see some of the most current uh, exhortations that I'm writing. And I write every day, sometimes twice, three times a day. I can't even get through the day if I don't write. Wow. God won't let me. I, I have to pull off the highway and write these sometimes. I have to stop everything I'm doing because I can't even think straight until I sit down and write these things out and post them on Instagram. If you go on Instagram right now, you'll see, man, Adam posted 15 posts in one week. But if you look underneath every one of those pictures, you will see why I'm doing that. Because my editor, what they're doing is I've got about 20 dedicated readers that are reading them all and then sending on to our editor any edits that need to be made. And so right now I'm at 3,200 exhortations that are all ready, edited. They are in a manuscript and they are ready to go. But I'm not doing anything with them. They're in a vault down in South Florida, just sitting there. And they've been sitting there for about seven months. Spirit-filled and ministry-minded directors running our Christian books. Most of them are just about the dollar. Most of them are just about making money. And uh, I think that that day's coming to an end. I don't need any more money. I don't need anyone's generosity. Our ministry is fully funded. There's churches that I go to. This recently, I went to a church and they took up an offering for $1,500. And I asked the pastor if he had an evangelism budget at his church. He said no. And the Holy Spirit said, give him that $1,500 and tell him, open up a budget in your church called evangelism budget and use all $1,500 to evangelize your neighborhoods, your community, and your city streets. And then he looked at me and he said, what do I, what would I do with $1,500? I said, you could go down to Sam's Club, purchase a grill, and get 20 boxes of hot dogs and condiments and napkins, and go down to the homeless community and grill hot dogs and preach the gospel to every single one of them. Why don't you spend the money like that? So, you know... I made some money earlier on in my life in business and had some different business ventures in my life. And so as an evangelist, I just feel that I cannot be purchased. I'm not for hire. And if you want me to preach in your church, then you have to trust that the only accountability that I've got in my life is the word of God and not your money. Because I've seen so many evangelists will compromise a message for the paycheck. Mm. Or they don't want to offend anybody. So that they, they'll, they'll preach a message that doesn't offend anyone. And uh, keep the money coming in. And what we need right now are preachers in the pulpit that have their own source of income. The congregation think that their generosity owns the pulpit. No, God owns the pulpit. And the only one that should hold the pulpit accountable is God Almighty and the Word of God and the scripture. 
Is what is being preached at your church the scripture? Is the whole counsel of the gospel being preached at your church? Are all the teachings of Jesus accepted, tolerated, and preached at your church? If not, probably not church. Because the thing about it is, we can't have preachers dependent on tithes and offerings and expect that preacher to tell you the truth. It's like these politicians that are reliant on corporate America and pharmaceutical companies for their fundraising. How do we expect someone to say the truth when those that are paying his bills, paying his mortgage, providing food on the table, are really the ones telling him what to say and when to say it. Yeah. And so the only place that needs to be free from any financial sway, the only place that needs to be free from any pressure of politics, the only place that needs to be free where true the true exercising of free speech from a biblical scriptural standpoint should be the pulpit of every church in America. But it's sad because most pulpits that are large and influential are very controlled. And they'll control what you say about sin. They'll control how you define hell the way Jesus did it. They will control anything to do with holiness or righteousness or evangelism or street evangelism. Basically, they, they want to control what's being communicated to the congregation because they don't want to lose their large donors that contribute very heavily towards their debts and their lifestyle. And so how can you have a man be free to preach when he's dependent on the offering that's coming in from those that he's preaching to? Yeah. And so that's why commission, the ministry that we have founded, we do not ask for money from the church. We come for free. If the pastors want to take up an offering, we let them do so. But we do expect that the scripture can be preached within its context and accurately to the best that we can. Yeah. And that and that the church would receive a word from God. It, no matter what way that word is, if it's convicting, amen. If it's a correction, amen. If it's a rebuke, amen. If it's comforting, amen. If it's loving, amen. But as long as it's from the scripture and it's there for the benefit and edification of the faith of the congregation, then that's who I want to partner with. That's who I want to team up with. That's the pastors I want to call friends. I want to call them my brothers. And I want to join forces with those that are willing to uphold the scripture and walk in obedience by the Spirit to evangelize a lost and dying world. Yeah. Amen. That's fire. Adam, thanks for taking some time and uh, being on the show with us today, man. Really appreciated hearing your story. Thank um, you for having me, brother. Yeah. Uh, I have one one more question for you, one final question. Um, but friends listening, um, yeah, so that book you heard uh, from Milk to Meat is available on Amazon. The website is commission.us. Um, you can follow Adam on Instagram. Adam James Field is the handle on Instagram. You can follow Adam on Facebook too. 
Uh, thanks for listening to the show today. And uh, one more question for you. I really like that line. God owns the pulpit. Um, but the my final question for you, Adam, is what would you say now, given what you actually just talked about to anybody who has an opportunity to speak, whether you're whether you have an opportunity to share with somebody in your workplace with uh, some random person you run into the grocery store or whether you're given the mic at a church. What, what is your message to that person when they're given that opportunity? I, I would say to anyone that has an opportunity to speak, to be very slow to speak and, and be very quick to listen to God. Uh, and don't, don't be quick to take a mic. Don't be quick to talk. Fools. Fools are quick to talk. Uh, fools are quick to speak. Uh, we we need to be slower with our speech, slower with our words, and more in prayer than preaching. God can do more through us being yielded to him in prayer than 10,000 opportunities to preach. And if we can say, Lord, before I say yes to this opportunity, before I say yes to taking this mic, what do you want me to do? Like God, what's your say in this? Because I want, I want to walk out a life of dependency on God. I would say to anyone that wants to evangelize, do not rely on any formula that you have learned in how to evangelize. Don't don't rely on any formula more than the Holy Spirit. Don't lean on you know, methodologies and strategies of man. Give yourself to the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit lead you in that conversation. Don't be quick to use your strategy. Don't be quick to use your formula. Don't be quick to use the 10 steps of a way that you've relied upon to share the gospel. The more a believer relies on the Spirit, the more we walk in relationship with God, the slower we are to speak out to everyone because we're speaking out to God. That's where we give room for God to do what only God can do in our evangelism. We don't argue people into the arms of God. If someone could be argued into the arms of God, that same person will run from the arms of God. It's not an argument that we have. We walk in the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And our relationship with the Lord is more important than evangelism. It's more important than preaching. Ministering to God is our first ministry, not to our family, not to the streets, not to the lost. Let me tell you something. Don't put your family ahead of God. Don't put anyone ahead of God. Minister to God. Worship God. Give your heart to God. And the out of that place of relationship with the Lord, He will lead you in what you're going to say, in how you're going to say it, how you're going to preach. God will be so near to you. Awesome, bro. Thanks so much, man. Amen. Amen.